0: All right, welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 188, Rebellion and Succession in the Kingdom of Wessex. This show is free and independent due to member support. And as thanks for helping keep the community going, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. If you're interested in supporting the show and helping us out, you can do so over at the com. And thank you very much to Rachel, James, and Finn... Finn... I assume you used to be known simply as FN2187. And keep running, Finn. Grand Moff Weasley is still out there. Anyway, thank you very much for supporting the community. And if you'd like to join Finn in his fight for the resistance and also for independent podcasts, you can join up for about the price of a latte per month. Before we begin, I'd like to address something from our last episode. I told you about reports of Vikinger armies marching around the countryside near the Reckon. And I offered a variety of methods of reaching the wreckin, all of which would have involved quite a bit of work. However, as some of you have noted on Facebook and Twitter, I left out the possibility that they might have gone up the River Severn. And I have no excuse for this one. I simply forgot the Severn. I don't know why, but I did. I'm human. Sometimes errors happen. And when it happens, all I can do is make a correction in the subsequent episode. So yeah, those Vikingers patrolling the Reckon may have sailed all the way around Wessex and Cornwall, or sailed through the Irish Sea past Wales, and then rowed up the Severn. And that certainly would get them much closer to the Reckon than, say, landing in East Anglia and marching. So, fair point. We aren't given details on how they got there, but it is definitely a possibility. That being said, though, it really doesn't change all that much of the point I was making. Namely, that we're not looking at quick, small, hit-and-run raiders. We're looking at armies. And armies that were able to strike deep into the Midlands. Damn near everywhere was in threat now. And in threat of substantially larger forces than they had dealt with a generation earlier. Also, what on earth were they doing up there? Because if we're to trust the reports, they were marching around the countryside near the Reckon. Why? What was there? And what happened to the towns that they passed along the way? For example, if they went up the Severn, what happened to Shrewsbury? Now the second thing that I'd like to address is that I've received some complaints that I don't say WhatNot anymore. And specifically, by doing that, I've ruined the BHP WhatNot drinking game. Sorry about that. I'm not going to return to that awful vocal tick, but since I don't want you to feel denied, I'll offer you a new drinking game. Every time I ask a question that has no answer, take a drink. Every time I say, frankly, we don't know, take two drinks. And you're going to want to do this at home and with something light. I don't want to be responsible for the first podcast-related death. And with those two bits of business out of the way, let's pick up right where we left off last week, with Wessex exploding into rebellion as King Aethelwulf sought to return to Britain with his new Frankish child bride. Queen Judith, and her recently blessed womb. This rebellion was no doubt a bit surprising for King Aethelwulf, but I don't think it should have been. He was following in the footsteps of Emperor Louis the Pious. This was how it was always going to play out, and everyone should have seen it coming. But whatever. As you might remember from the last episode, there weren't any explicit statements telling us exactly why Aethelwulf's son launched a rebellion, but it's pretty clear that was connected to his father's recent marriage to Judith. After all, it was highly unlikely that King Charles would have given his daughter to someone whose kingdom was in a state of rebellion. Further, King Aethelwulf was a battle-tested and victorious king, so he was probably pretty popular at home, and it's unlikely that there would have been any significant unrest in Wessex regarding the way he ruled. So it seems like the one thing that the people had to complain about regarding Aethelwulf was his marriage to Judith and that dissatisfaction was probably stoked by his children who would have feared that they would have been disinherited by any future step-siblings. This was a reasonable fear on the part of Aethelwulf's sons, by the way. But this revolt placed Aethelwulf in an awkward position. What does he do here? Does he fight his own son or does he give up his crown and possibly lose the alliance that he was forming with Charles? And it wasn't just Aethelwulf who was put into a tough spot by this rebellion. Don't forget that he had several sons, and the record doesn't mention that they immediately followed their brother's lead. And it wouldn't have been an easy decision for them. On the one hand, they were staring down the barrel of a potential disinheritance, and the economics of the time were so extreme that losing their position had incredibly serious consequences. But on the other hand, if they fought their father... They'd be fighting their father. And they might even end up committing patricide on the battlefield. Not only that, but King Aethelwulf was a gifted war leader who led the West Saxons into numerous victories. So there's also the possibility that they'd be defeated. And even if they survived that defeat, what would that sort of failed coup do for their standing in the line of succession? They also had to consider the fact that Aethelbald, who was the brother who launched the war, might be facing not only the troops loyal to his father, but also, due to the recent marriage, any Frankish troops that King Charles could spare. So, would it be all that wise to side with their brother in this situation? Both sides had their advantages and disadvantages. Finally, in addition to all of that, the idea of a protracted and bloody civil war wasn't without its consequences. It was this type of situation, along with the civil war that followed, that weakened the Frankish Empire and wrecked their Coast Guard, and thus helped along the rapid growth of Vikinger bands. And it's not like the Scandinavians weren't a threat anymore. They are an even bigger threat than they used to be, in fact. This is the nightmare situation that the House of Wessex was in. All that careful work and planning carried out by King Egbert and King Aethelwulf could be completely undone unless they were very careful. Something else to keep in mind is that this doesn't make the House of Wessex look all that good either. And as we've been discussing, making the House of Wessex look like the adults in the room was kind of the whole point of these records. But this marriage and the subsequent rebellion really looked like Amateur Hour. It was a bit of an embarrassment, and even worse, it was an international embarrassment the Franks saw the whole thing. You can almost imagine Aethelwulf saying, Really? You're going to do this now, in front of everyone. But that's how it played out. Consequently, because it was out in the open and the Franks were writing about it, the Chronicle and Asser would have to address it as well. But tellingly, our sources let the details out and were told barely more than what the Frankish annals had to say, which was hardly anything. The Frankish Annals tell us that Aethelwulf returned to control his kingdom. That's it. So we can assume that Aethelwulf somehow came out on top in this situation, but we really don't know how he did it. The Chronicle adds that the people of Wessex were happy to see the return of their king. Which could really mean anything. It could just be standard propaganda, with the scribes speaking about how everyone loved the dear leader. Or it could be accurate reporting, which would give us an idea of this king's popularity and might even give us an idea of what brought the conflict to an end. Because I doubt the scribes were talking about the common folk here. They were probably writing about the mood of the nobility. And if the wearods were happy to see the return of King Aethelwulf, the rebel King Aethelbald might have quickly realized that he overplayed his hand. But it's hard to say. And then we have Asser. He backs up the story that King Aethelwulf returned to rule over Wessex. But he adds that Aethelwulf surrendered the western districts of his kingdom to Aethelbald in order to avoid civil war. Now that is really interesting. And it's the sort of thing that I would expect out of the line of Egbert, if we're honest. King Aethelwulf was probably in his 60s. He was ancient and towards the end of his life. And the rebel king Aethelbald was already being groomed to become the new king of Wessex. I mean, he was the acting king in his father's absence. This whole thing was almost a done deal. So rather than fighting it out and wrecking the kingdom and having the dynasty fall into civil war and possibly losing everything, why not carve out a piece of the kingdom for his son to rule until it comes time for him to ascend to the throne properly? It's not a bad solution. And as a concession, it seems that King Æthelwulf was also able to insist that Judith would retain her title of queen. All in all, this is pretty classic West Saxon politicking, but here's where the whole thing gets a little sticky. The traditional interpretation of what Asser says goes something like this. The rebel King Aethelbald took Wessex and left the eastern portion, which was the conglomerate kingdom of Kent, to his father, King Aethelwulf. So King Ethelwolf, at the end of his life, was a sub-king to his second son, King Ethelbald, who was earlier the rebel king. Make sense? Okay. Now, if that's true, what happened to the other son, King Ethelbert of Kent? Don't forget that he was already ruling Kent. And this interpretation of the records would imply that following the revolt, King Aethelwulf ousted his third son from his Kentish throne because his second son refused to get off the throne of Wessex. That doesn't seem right, does it? Well, it might not be. I had a look into it, and there's some degree of disagreement over the record. And what Kirby suggests is that Athelwolf partitioned Wessex into two sections. He gave Aethelbald the western part of Wessex, maybe beyond Selwood, and he kept the central and eastern parts of Wessex to himself. That would have left Æthelbert in control of Kent and avoided any need to evict him, which is good because it doesn't seem like he did anything wrong. It's an explanation that ties things up pretty neatly, and that does make the theory quite appealing. But sometimes life is a little messy, So maybe the old perspective is correct, and Aethelwulf evicted his third son from the throne because his second son launched a revolt. It would not be fair by any stretch of the imagination, but based upon other records of these royal families, it's not like these people were strangers to dysfunction. So who knows? Whatever the case, the crisis ended. The House of Wessex retained its control of the south, and the Frankish child queen Judith co-ruled the eastern part of the kingdom. At about the same time as this, in Wales, something was going on. Okay, a lot has been going on in Wales, but we have very few records, so it's hard to get a clear picture of what exactly was happening. But at about 8.56, we start to hear about a king of Gwyneth named Rodri at Murfin. Rodri, son of Murfin. Murfin, by the way, was the previous king of Gwyneth. Now... King Rodri had been ruling for about 12 years at this point, having inherited the throne from his father in 844. And much like the rest of Britain, the Kingdom of Gwyneth was having its fair share of troubles with the Scandinavians. Even Anglesey had been ravaged by the Viking menace. But in 856, a Viking army under the command of a man named Gorm landed in Gwyneth, and King Rodri and his men marched out to meet them. There, they defeated the Vikings and killed Gorm. This would not be the last time that Rodri would fight the Vikings, and he was uncommonly successful in his wars against them. In fact, scholars argue that it was due to his efforts that the Northmen didn't penetrate much beyond Anglesey. As a consequence of this victory and others, it wasn't long before the people stopped calling him Rodri at Murfin and began to call him Rodri Mower. Rodri the Great. And this was a title held by two other major leaders we've been talking about. Charles the Great, who was also known as Charlemagne, and someone we're just meeting right now in the story, Alfred the Great. The point is that, while you might have never heard of him, this guy was a pretty big deal. And if he had hired biographers and scribes like the other greats, he might have become a household name. But at the very least the people of Gwyneth were well impressed. Perhaps riding on the wave of his successes, King Rodri then set his sights upon the exhausted kingdom of Pous. Pous had recently suffered terribly at the hands of their Mercian neighbors. And then, after a few too many defeats, their king abandoned them and sought solace in Rome. And died there. So now, Poes was leaderless, and staring down the barrel of Mercian aggression. Not exactly the best of situations. Enter Rodri Mauer. Rodri was a triumphant battle-hardened king. And, as he was no doubt quick to point out, he wasn't just descendant from the royal dynasty of Gwyneth. He was also part of the royal dynasty of Poes on his mother's side. Not too shabby. I mean, sure, the laws were pretty clear that inheritance only followed the male line, and the law is the law, But on the other hand, they had Mercians, Scandinavians, and God knows what else to worry about. And this guy was the grandson of one of the kings of Powys, was good in a fight, and he was up for the job. Did they really want to split hairs here? So, in pretty short order, Rodri Mauer annexed Powys and became the king of a massive portion of Wales. In fact, he was so powerful that the annals of Ulster later referred to him as the King of the Britons. Then, a year or two passed without much to note. I'm sure there were raids that went unrecorded, and there were probably some land transfers, some deaths, and all sorts of the things that we typically see in the record. But as far as the scribes were concerned, nothing really important happened for a couple years. Until January 13th, 858. On that date, King Æthelwulf of Wessex died. And it can't have been a big shock, considering that he was probably in his mid-60s, which was pretty damn old for the time. I mean, he had been alive for almost the entirety of the Viking Age up to this point. He was really up there. And bucking the trend, he very well might have died from heart disease rather than Olaf the Vikinger. But now that he was dead... Wessex was facing off with yet another potential succession crisis. Don't forget that for the vast majority of West Saxon history, the transfer of power was a bit dodgy, and generally didn't follow the lines of primogeniture. Egbert and Aethelwulf had been seeking to change that trend, and they'd both engaged heavily in dynastic politics in order to achieve that goal. But it was anything but a sure bet. Especially when you take into account that there was even a rebellion launched by his own family. The nobility, especially those with skin in the game, must have been holding their breath when it came time to announce the next king of Wessex. And nothing terrible happened. There wasn't a coup. There wasn't a civil war. There wasn't an insurgency. The throne of Wessex passed to Aethelbald, and his brother, King Ethelbert, ruled over Kent, just as their father had wished. It was peaceful. Now this is incredibly lucky. I mean, sure, it's also the result of a lot of hard work on the part of Aethelwulf and his father Egbert. But when people talk about the House of Wessex during this period, there's often a tone of inevitability, like they're just a better breed of nobles who are destined to rule. And that interpretation would certainly make Alfred quite happy, because that was the story he wanted us to hear. But this easily could have been the story of Mercia or Northumbria had they gotten their act together and not fallen into infighting. Similarly, for centuries, the story of Wessex had been consumed with infighting of the same sort that was currently plaguing their northern neighbors. And it could have easily continued indefinitely. The fact that they stopped fighting amongst themselves was anything but guaranteed. And with a few small changes in history, we could be talking about the House of Northumbria or the House of Mercia dominating England. Or, had the West Saxons continued on their chaotic path, we might be speaking Danish right now. There's all sorts of ways that this could have played out. And this peaceful and effective transfer of power from father to son owes a tremendous amount to sheer luck. And yes, a lot of this was the result of the work of Egbert and his son. They worked very hard to consolidate power and create a cultural push that just accepted their line’s right to rule. However, they were just one bad son, just one ruler who was quote "gibbering with demons, end quote, "away from a disaster." They quite simply lucked out that Egbert was trained in the Carolingian court, was wise enough to consolidate power, had a son who followed in his footsteps, didn't have any maniac heirs, and whenever they made mistakes, like that whole Queen Judith thing, they were reasonable enough to resolve it without exploding into interdynastic blood feuds. And as a result of all of this, we now have King Aethelbald of Wessex, and the 14-year-old Dowager Queen Judith, who was presumably just kicking around the royal residence. And that would not do. The mere presence of this woman nearly caused an outright war between King Athelbald and his father. And while she hadn't bore any children, it still was a bit awkward. So, King Athelbald did what any Anglo-Saxon king would have done in his situation. He married his recently widowed teenage stepmom, because Anglo-Saxons. By the way, whenever anyone talks about our Anglo-Saxon heritage, this is what I imagine they're referring to. Now, in all likelihood, King Ethelbald was probably playing the long game, and he entered into the marriage for the same reason that his father did. He wanted to maintain close ties with Francia. As a bonus, he may have also wanted to give his offspring the aura of legitimacy that would disinherit his brothers. Don't forget that King Aethelwulf, his father, was quite clear that the line of succession would follow each of his sons, and he didn't make any mention of grandsons. So if King Aethelbald had any kids, they wouldn't inherit the kingdom. One of his brothers would. Unless something could be done to weigh the odds in their favor. And Queen Judith did have that magically blessed womb. So it sort of makes sense if you look at it from a certain angle. But still, stepmom. That's intense, even for the time. Not only that, but Aethelbald would have been about 26, with a 14 year old bride. So on the one hand, she is no longer 12, and there is only a 12 year difference between them rather than a 33 33- to 48 year difference. So I guess that's an improvement of a sort. But we don't know. Nobody asked Judith. Also, you might remember how, during the conversion period, the church demanded that the kings of Kent stop marrying their stepmothers. Well, it's still happening, apparently. And that doesn't look good. And something else to keep in mind is that the last time we had a king Ethelbald, he was getting angry letters from the church because he kept sleeping with nuns. And now, this new King Aethelbald was marrying his stepmom. Maybe this is why you don't meet too many Aethelbalds these days. Sometimes a few scandals ruin a perfectly good name for everyone. When was the last time you met a five-year-old named Monica? It was so bad that even Asser dressed him down for it, stating, quote, Once King Aethelwulf was dead, Aethelbald, his son, against God's prohibition and Christian dignity, and also contrary to the practice of all pagans, took over his father's marriage bed and married Judith, daughter of Charles, king of the Franks, incurring great disgrace from all who heard it, End quote. Basically, Asser was saying that this was low, even lower than those godless pagans. We should never forget that Asser's main audience is Alfred, who was about nine years old at the time of his brother's marriage to Judith. And the whole point of Asser's biography was to make the case for Alfred's greatness. So trashing an older brother who was occupying the throne that was destined for Alfred wasn't exactly the worst thing in the world. But still, this is some scandalous shit. But before we close up this episode, let's take a moment and look at what's happened to Queen Judith over the last couple years. For her, this started when she was sold by her father into a marriage with a foreign senior citizen in order to foster closer ties between Francia and Wessex. Because that's essentially what's happened here. Princesses generally didn't get a say in who they married. And this was the situation for a lot of European noblewomen during this period, writ large. It was actually just kind of the situation for European women in general, I mean, even if you were a poor peasant girl, you would end up being sent out of your family's home and expected to live and be part of your new husband's family and just adjust to their family dynastics and cultural quirks without having any say in the matter. You couldn't even divorce. That was a right that the Scandinavians had, but not the Europeans. You were locked in. And even lower orders tended to do arranged marriages through male guardians where the bride's agreement wasn't required. But when it came to princesses, well, this was state business, and I really doubt that King Charles and King Aethelwulf were going to let a 12-year-old girl's wishes get in the way of their political wrangling. Judith was basically sold for political reasons to a guy in his 60s who she likely didn't share a common language with, and she had to leave her family, her kin group that ostensibly protected her, and everything she knew. And accompany him across the channel to a kingdom that, while it was becoming a major player, was still part of a region that was considered a backwater. And it was a place where she likely didn't know anyone, the culture was alien to her, and she didn't have anyone to look out for. Sure, she probably would have brought an entourage of some sort. After all, I find it highly unlikely that Charles would have sent his daughter across the channel completely alone. In the past, Frankish brides had been accompanied by clergy members and other members of court, so she probably had attendants and likely some translators. But beyond that, Judith was at the mercy of her new husband and his kin. And apparently, his kin were crazy and they hated her because they launched into an open rebellion immediately upon just hearing about Judith. A rebellion that was so bad that her husband had to give away part of his kingdom in order to bring it to an end. So great, she wasn't just sold to a foreign senior citizen. She was sold to a foreign senior citizen with a population that hated her before they even met her. Other than her husband and her entourage, who could she talk to? Hell, who would she even be safe being around at court? Her isolation must have been extreme. Now, because Aethelwulf was probably in his 60s, this was before Viagra, and she didn't bear any children, it's quite possible that she wasn't ever forced to consummate the marriage. But even if she was spared that indignity, it still was a brutal situation for a young girl. And after about 18 months of what I can assume would have been, at the very least, a pretty lonely marriage, her husband died. And now she was in a foreign land surrounded by people who saw her as a potential threat, without any real protection, and the man who launched a rebellion against his own father over her mere presence... Yeah, that guy was now the new king. Then, as if it couldn't get any worse, he up and married her. Which, of course, she wouldn't have had any say in. She was isolated, alone, forced into a marriage with both a father and a son, And both of them pretty clearly saw her as a political pawn. And this second marriage was so scandalous that even the clergy were condemning it. And she was a part of it. She couldn't exactly blame it on her husband. His sins were hers. She had become a true social pariah in this backwards kingdom in Britain. And there was no clear path out of her plight. Nowhere that she could run to. All right. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. And why don't you join us on Twitter? We're at British Podcast, and there are all kinds of other communities you can join, and you can find links to all of them at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening.